from our perspective, the Enneagram is a model. It's a tool. Mm -hmm. It is not a, uh, it's not a path necessarily. Like we've said in other videos, the, um, uh, the Enneagram is not a complete uh, path for self-development. Okay? It is a tool to be used amongst other tools. And um, being as it's a model, it's important to understand this uh, saying that we start all of our talks about the Enneagram with. It's that um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And that's attributed to a uh, statistician by the name of George Box. Uh, but uh, it's, it's an important one to keep in mind. A model is a representation of something. It's not the thing itself. I think it was Maslow who said uh, uh, the map is not the territory, although I might be wrong on that, uh, who originally said it. But um, the map is not the territory. And the Enneagram is not the thing itself. It is a representation of the thing itself and every map is by definition limited um, the uh, it would be no good for us to carry in our pocket a map that was one-to-one -one scale the size of the city okay um, every map is a scaled down version that represents something now some maps are better than others okay? and therefore they are more useful but it's the reason this matters is because very often people try to explain everything with the Enneagram. They try to explain every phenomenon. Well, why do I drink with my right hand instead of with my left hand, right? Or why do I wear this color? Why do I like this color of pants rather than that color of pants? Some things have reasons or explanations that are not included in what we know about people through the Enneagram. Okay? Um, so it's important to exercise restraint and humility around what we can explain through the Enneagram and what we can't. Yeah, and so there are dangers to this, as you were mentioning, and we've seen with our clients that get really worried when they hear the word Enneagram and they see it as something that we're trying to push on them that will explain everything. So when we share this uh, quote and say, look, this is just a model and it's a really useful one, they kind yeah. of relax because it's not yeah. like a religion. It's not something right. that it's a secret um, knowledge that um, explains everything. Yeah. This speaks to, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that, that it's, um, also tricky when we think that, for example, someone is a four and we kind of force certain stories on people and um, they, if they do something, we say, ah, you're doing it because of this. And they say, no. I said, well, I know you do because you're a four, for example. So it's, yeah. we need to be really, really careful. We're very complex, and the Enneagram doesn't explain everything, and it doesn't predict uh, everything. It just describes a lot of things if we use it well. Yeah. Yeah, you know, th that's a really, really good point. And um, very often, people will dismiss 
comments or feedback from other people by attributing it to their personality type, right? Um, you know, if you were to, for example, you know, point out something that I did wrong, I, you know, a response could be, well, you're just saying that because you're a one. Right. And again, we try to explain everything through the Enneagram and um, get distance from it. You know, you may well be exactly right. in What you said, whether you're a one or not, doesn't matter. You probably right? am right. Um, you probably are right. <laughs> but uh, but um, but it's not because you're a one. No. Right? And it's not, you know, and if I disagree with you, um, the uh, just pointing out your Enneagram type is not a valid uh, no. argument. In fact, that should probably be a new logical fallacy that we create. Maria Jose is, uh, uh, you know, a tr attribution to the Enneagram or something. Appeal yes. to Enneagram, <laughs> a, you know, appeal to Enneagram is a logical fallacy. Um, so, uh, um, you, you know, something else that this points to is that um, there's a lot of people who would try to turn the Enneagram into a religion. Uh, frankly, it's one of the disturbing trends for me in the Enneagram literature is this desire to make the Enneagram something magical and mystical and, you know, uh, uh, more than it is, which is just a model of human nature and yes. should be treated as such. Something that has to be discovered. Yes. Because it's there. Yeah. Yeah. It's yes. not. It's something that we create to ascribe our psyche, our behavior, and not the other way around. Exactly right. And this is something that's important for people who are a little um, queasy about the Enneagram because of all this uh, 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 religiosity associated with it, you know, this, uh, and not that it's used in religious practice, but that people are making it into a religion. Um, that's certainly not the way we see it. We see it as a model. We see it as a model created by people that reflects something that exists. Okay. But that doesn't mean that it exists in some archetypal, you know, metaphysical form or anything like that. That's just, in my view, a bit silly. Um, yeah. It's the other like, thing that. Oh. I was go going to say that it's like going back to some uh, another video where you were explaining, uh, making the um, example of the maps. When we used to travel with maps, um, I remember buying maps and there were some good ones and some bad ones or incomplete. Some of them had more detail and some of them had less detail. And I used to buy the ones that I thought were the best. The Enneagram is a really, really good map. Yeah. I think, too, one, I guess one final thought from me on this is that... Um, one of the reasons why some approaches to the Enneagram are so complex is because they're looking to explain things that may not be explainable through the Enneagram, right? So, um, you know, different configurations and different triads and different this and different that are ways of, are ways of trying to, you know, keep adding pieces to the map when, you know, maybe it's just time to bring out a different map to explain what we're seeing. Yeah. So the word Enneagram, as most people know, um, comes from the Greek terms Ennea for nine and gram for drawing. Uh, so the Enneagram is a diagram 
with nine points and nine lines that um, uh, to which psychological phenomenon have been uh, mapped. Some people try to use it for uh, mapping and tracking other phenomena as well. Uh, it's called the Enneagram process, but that's not something we get into um, in our work necessarily. Okay. Uh, so even though uh, most of the time the Enneagram is thought of as a system of nine, um, there's another dimension to it that we think is equally as important, and that's the three instinctual biases. Now, people use all sorts of terms for this. They use um, uh, subtypes, they use instincts. We refer to in three instinctual biases. So the Enneagram for us is actually two components or two models that work together complementarily. Uh, the first model is the three instinctual biases, preserving, navigating, and transmitting. And the second component is the nine strategies. And I can't list all nine of those at this point. And, and many times we use them as independent typologies. And it doesn't mean that they are enough on their own, but they're quite useful for different things. Um, and when we put them and use them together, they're even more powerful. But there is value in using, seeing them as independent uh, typologies because sometimes you don't have a lot of time and you can use just the three instinctual biases and they would explain a lot and would be actionable on its own. Same thing with the yeah. nine strategies. Yeah, so it's interesting, Maria Jose, because as you said that, it occurred to me that, you know, very often when we talk about the um, the rationalization for treating them independently, we emphasize, you know, well, sometimes, you know, we only have time to talk about so much and it's better to talk about three, et cetera. Uh, but also, sometimes only one of these is relevant, right? Um, you, you know, it, it's like, um, again, we see this as a tool and you should only use whatever tool you need to. Okay, So sometimes when we're working with a group or working with an individual, their Enneagram type is irrelevant to whatever it is we're talking about. And the instinctual bias is the only thing we need to talk about. Okay? Um, and sometimes it's just the strategy that's relevant. So other times you can use that. So our view is, is that you have these two pieces that work uh, that can work independently and can also enrich each other in a lot of ways. I mean, look, for years and years, people only talked about the nine Enneagram types and very few people talked about the subtypes, okay? Let alone talking about them as uh, independent uh, 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 qualities or phenomena. So um, the, um, you know, it will always be richer to combine the two. But of course, everything is richer when you add components to it. So um, uh, the value of understanding that these are two independent variables is that, um, you know, time constraints or, you know, what the client is interested in can only apply. You know, you can only you can just use one or the other. And sometimes you only need one or the other and not both. And we need to understand both. Because otherwise, it's really easy to mistype ourselves or someone else when you don't understand both dimensions. Um, so, That's so important. Yeah. Go ahead, say more. No, because many times we, 
because we only focus on the three strategies or enneotypes, we lose all that, um, the part of the model that explains what we care about, what it's important to us, why, what we pay attention to, that it uh, brings the instinctual biases. And we tend to mistype um, ourselves or, or other people because we are not taking that into account. Yeah. Yeah. And there are um, a number of um, um, subtypes, right? Uh, and we should talk about what we mean by type, uh, you know, instinctual bias subtype in a moment. But uh, there are a number of subtypes, for example, that have um, uh, an instinctual bias and a strategy that are in conflict with each other. Yeah. And so they become, you know, a version of that Enneagram type that does not look like the typical or the stereotype of that Enneagram type, but it's because there's a conflict between these two things. And yes. there's other times when, mm. I was going to say, there's other times when these two things are very similar to each other, and that becomes sort of the stereotype of the type. Yeah. So but, when we combine the three instinctual biases and the nine strategies, um, we get 27 subtypes. So each, at each point of the nine strategies, we have three versions of it, of it. We could say that it's the other way around, but because we usually start with the model, with the symbol. Um, if uh, you're a type one, you could be a preserving one, a navigating one, or a transmitting one. And uh, there are 27 combinations of that, some of which um, the combination kind of they both dimensions reinforce each other, as Mari was saying. Uh, for example, and we'll see it later, but um, transmitting eight. And in some combinations, both dimensions almost contradict each other or balance each other, uh, like the preserving seven or um, transmitting nine. I was talking with a transmitting nine the other day who was talking about how there are so many things about the nine he just doesn't relate to and um, that there were um, uh, tendencies to, uh, you know, sometimes be confused or to confuse other people okay, about the Enneagram type. So, um, so when uh, as far as terminology is concerned, I like to be very specific about this because it can be confusing when we're just talking about the... Um, the Enneagram type by itself, or in our terms, the strategy, the we refer to the strategy. Okay? When we're talking about the three instinctual biases independently, we call them instinctual biases, right? So there's the preserving instinctual bias, the navigating instinctual bias, etc. When you bring the two things together, like in our yin and yang diagram here, or our tai chi, uh, we refer, what we're talking about here is a subtype. The combination of those two things and like maria jose said earlier one could make the argument that we're talking about nine subtypes of three types or that we're talking about three subtypes of nine types uh sort of a chicken and the egg argument but uh, uh we stick to saying there are three subtypes of nine fundamental types because that is the convention in the enneagram literature So the question is, what is the Enneagram? And, um, it's good to have an explanation of this, and there are a lot of different um, 
definitions of what the Enneagram is. Uh, fundamentally, Ennea means nine in Greek. Gram means drawing. So we all know that the Enneagram is a drawing with nine lines and nine points around it. And each of those points represents a personality style. And the lines represent the dynamics between those personality styles. Now, we always like to tell people that the Enneagram is both a descriptive and a prescriptive model. Okay, uh, What that means is it describes um, patterns of personality and it can be used to prescribe uh, steps for growth. Okay, What it is not, however, go ahead, Maria. Is no, I was something? just going to say that, that it, what it isn't, <clears throat> although it's very tempting to see it that way, is uh, predictive. Uh, it does, it, it has, um, it gives you certain, with a certain probability um, that some behaviors may occur, but it doesn't mean that we know what's going to happen. We know how we're going to behave or someone else is going to behave because they have a particular personality. Yeah. And I think people make this mistake all the time. And we often get clients who ask us if we can give them on advice on, for example, you know, what kind of person they should hire for a particular role or if the Enneagram can be used for that. Or they might ask us, you know, silly questions like, well, I'm this type, who should I marry? Or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, the reality is that the Enneagram is pretty um, limited in uh, what it can tell us about those things. Okay, so we always try to stay away from predicting. Also, people surprise us all the time, right? We talk to an eight and we think, oh, the eight's going to explode when he hears this, and the eight doesn't explode. Or we think that the one is going to say, oh, no way, she'll never go for this, but, uh, you know, and then she does. So people always surprise us. But the Enneagram can help us understand um, something that happened, right? Why somebody might have acted a certain way. So it kind of works backwards a lot better than it works forward, right? Explaining mm -hmm. rather than predicting. And it works forward in terms of working with behavior. If I know why I do what I do, then it's easier to address potential issues that I may have or other people may have. So I can work with yeah. behavior looking forward, but not predict what's going to happen. Right. So basically, if we could just go back for a second, the Enneagram is a system for classifying personality and for working with behavior for those reasons we just said. And types, and by types, we talk about Enneatypes here, or the strategies, as we call them, and the instinctual biases. Um, but the types, so the Enneatypes, are defined by their preferred strategy for dealing with the world. So the instinctual biases are uh, what we value, our focuses of, of attention, and the types are the preferred strategy we use to deal with the world, to address those needs or those values. So a lot of people are really uncomfortable with the word type, and I understand why. Mm -hmm. Nobody likes to be seen as a type or put into a box and that sort of thing. Um, but when you think about it, we all use the word um, uh, casually 
in a lot of ways. Oh, well, he's the type of person who enjoys this, or she's the type of person who does that. And what we're saying when we refer to somebody as uh, an Enneagram type three or an Enneagram type seven is that this is the kind of person whose preferred strategy is this striving to feel outstanding in the case of the three or striving to feel excited in the case of the seven. So it's important to understand that we're not, again, making a classification uh, that uh, would be called an ontological classification of putting people in a a particular box, but it's a um, uh, uh, just what we call somebody has who has a tendency to behave in certain ways. Yeah, and although we're familiar with all the strategies uh, or types, we tend to fixate in one of them. We ha- tend to have one as our preferred, in an unconscious way, our preferred strategy. That That's the one that we use more than the others. Right. Good. It's important to point out that none of the types are better inherently than any of the other types. We all have our favorites. We all have our biases. We all have people, uh, you know, that we get along with better than, you know, different kinds of people. That's only natural. Um, But there is no real inherent value in saying I'm this type rather than that type because this type's better. Okay. Uh, They all have their strengths and they all have potential weaknesses. Okay. So um, there's really no benefit in hoping we're one type rather than another. Now, it is important to be aware of um, these biases we have. And although we know rationally that they're not, none is better than the other, uh, deep inside we sometimes like one more type, one type more than another. And when we're using the Enneagram with other people, it is important to acknowledge that to understand that we might say things that make a particular type look worse than others. And that has an impact on other people. That might make the person not want to see themselves in uh, that particular type or the other way around. If we describe one type just as too positive compared to the others, people will want to see themselves as that. When I first started teaching the Enneagram in organizations, for some reason, everybody wanted to be eights. Um, I, I don't know what, what gave them the idea that eights were better than other types, but, uh, you know, it wasn't one of those biases, right? You so, wonder. Um, <laughs> so it is important that we're aware of those biases, like Maria Jose saying, and um, that we account for them when we're teaching. Um, also, it, it's important to understand that there are a wide range of psychological health and performance effectiveness represented in each of the types, right? Meaning that there are some people of any given type, you know, who are, you know, candidates for sainthood because they're such good people, such healthy people. And there's others who probably should be in prison or something. Okay. But it's not, again, uh, one type bad and the other type good. It's this range of uh, psychological health. Now, we stay away in our work. Um, uh, talking about psychological health for a variety of reasons. 
Uh, number one is that we work in organizations and it's just inappropriate to make assessments of somebody's uh, psychological health in an association. That's not what our job is. So our preference is to talk about how these, um, uh, how these strategies manifest themselves in us and whether we're using them in an adaptive way, meaning a way that's positive and helping us solve our problems and making us and the people around us happier, or whether we're using them in a maladaptive way, which is having the opposite effect of those things. Yeah, and what we've seen is that nobody sees themselves in the um, lower levels and everybody see themselves in the higher levels and yeah. it's not like we're always in one and so it, it is tricky and we prefer to stay away from that because it's not useful yes absolutely it's always about is this effective or not is this getting our uh, uh our ethical and uh, uh um helpful needs met So we like to talk about the Enneagram as a problem resolution protocol. A problem resolution protocol is a series of steps that we go through uh, in a logical sequence in order to um, um, most efficiently deal with a problem. Okay. It's a great story in uh, Zen Buddhism about how Zen is like soap. The idea being that if you're dirty, you get into the shower and you use the soap to lather up, but then you rinse the soap off and it takes the dirt with it. You don't go around all day carried in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, covered in soap. Okay? And so the, the Zen teachers will say in the same way, you don't walk around all day covered in Zen, right? You don't talk all day about Zen. You just kind of go through life, but you pull the Zen out, your Zen teachings out when you're facing a problem for which they're appropriate. So we see the Enneagram the same way, right? We don't want to uh, go around covered in the Enneagram all day, right? We see the Enneagram as something we use to fix a problem, and it uh, provides for us a protocol, right? A, uh, uh, an efficient way to uh, quickly identify what our potential problems are. Yeah, some people tell me I'm a two, what should I do? I said, nothing, go on with your life. <laughs> Unless you have a right. problem. And then if you do, right. then we can do something about it and use the income for it. Exactly right. So, um, you know, just a good example of this last night, I, I was starting to install a new router for the Wi-Fi in my house and it wasn't working the way it was supposed to. So I called the uh, Internet provider. And the technician that I talked to took me through a process, right? He knew exactly where to start. He said, okay, I'm going to send this signal to your box and then tell me what happens. Okay. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did it because they know that usually sending this signal will fix the problem, okay, 80, 90% of the times. And if it doesn't, well, then they ask questions and then they go to the next step. This saves a lot of time and energy because we don't have to ask a thousand questions. We just go to what the high probability thing is. So in Maria Jose's example, if somebody's a two and something's not going right, we say, okay, well, let's look at this strategy of striving to feel connected and see if there's something related to that. And if the person is a two, then more likely than not, that will be the issue we need to look at. Okay? 
If not, we go to the next most logical thing. And same thing with ourselves. It's if we notice that there's something that it's um, causing some friction, then we can look at what's going on. How am I feeling? Why am I reacting to this this way? And the Enneagram can point us to something that it's useful that we can become more aware of. It's common for the Enneagram to feel like a new toy, right? And when people first discover the Enneagram, they're playing with it all the time, right? You know, they, it's the greatest thing. It's all they want to talk about. Um, and uh, that new toy phase goes on a really long time for some people, right? Uh, our view is, is that, you know, again, the Enneagram's like a bar of soap. You take it out when something's not working that well, and you put it away when things are working fine. The work that we do is around learning to recognize the signals of something not working more quickly. Okay, so we get more in tune with our emotional states, for example, so that when we recognize that we're starting to get angry, we learn to recognize the anger more quickly than we used to. Or when we're sad, we recognize the sadness or whatever the emotional state is. And then once we recognize or diagnose the problem, or recognize the problem, then we go into the drawer and pull out the Enneagram and then we start to work with it. Okay? So um, it's important to view the Enneagram this way as something we take out when we need it instead of walking around all day you know, with our T-shirts, with our number on it, or our coffee mugs with the number. We feel that that can be kind of fixating. Or talking about it all the time. Yeah, or talking about it all the time. There are a lot of benefits of uh, working with the Enneagram, but they fall into two basic areas. Okay? Uh, the first area is understanding ourselves, and the second area is understanding other people. Right? Uh, when it comes to understanding ourselves, we can use the Enneagram to develop a deeper appreciation for our own habitual patterns and see how they affect our performance and interactions with others. Okay? Uh, what we mean by this is that the Enneagram serves as a a sort of external and objective reminder of the patterns we fall into. Okay? We don't see ourselves, right? This is one of the lessons that we run into over and over and over again, is that we don't see ourselves as accurately as we think we do. Uh, the Enneagram is a reminder. It says, hey, you know, if this is your Enneagram type, you want to pay attention to this area because you're probably doing this behavior or that behavior more than you realize that you do. And once you recognize those behaviors, you can start to change. Yeah, and we have all these stories in our head that um, we tell to ourselves. And many times they don't help us see ourselves clearly. Same thing with the uh, cognitive biases that we've seen before. It's um, different ways in which we don't see ourselves clearly. And the Enneagram is a map that we can get back to um, to see ourselves um, in a different light. The second area is around seeing uh, other people and becoming more compassionate for them, right? So um, it's very easy to, whenever we think about our own shortcomings or think about the shortcomings of other people, to personalize them. Okay? Mm. And when we personalize them, we get defensive about them. When we look at ourselves through the lens of the Enneagram type, we actually become less defensive 
because we realize there's this pattern that I'm not the only one uh, that is experiencing this. Okay, there's you know one ninth of humanity that's kind of going through the same thing. So, um, um, so we start to develop more compassion towards ourselves, but we can also uh, apply that to other people as well. Okay, so when we understand other people's enneagram type. Uh, we can, you know, be more compassionate for their foibles, right? Of the, you know, crazy, silly things that they do that might otherwise irritate us. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, we understand that it, it is their type, their type or the strategy they use. Uh, it's not something personal. It is usually when we feel that it's something personal that they're doing um, that we get irritated or that we react to it more reactive when we understand that it just because they are a particular type and that's what they tend to do in certain situations it's easier to take some distance and observe it and not react to it and feel more compassionate yeah now of course this doesn't mean we should put up with deeply dysfunctional behavior in somebody else just because we can in some way tie it to their enneagram type right uh, we don't want to stay in an abusive behavior uh, or an abusive relationship for example with somebody uh, because you know by sort of writing it off as oh that's just them being their type we all have to take responsibility for who we are and what we do and at the same time it just helps us to understand that they're struggling with their habitual patterns just as much as we are, right? So when we start to recognize, hey, you know what? I keep falling into this same pattern, no matter how hard I try, right? Uh, we can sort of uh, be more compassionate for others who don't change immediately, um, even when we expect them to do so. So I like to think of the Enneagram as a technology, right? It's a, um, it's a constructed tool or model that we use to solve a particular problem. Okay. It's an extension of, uh, the human mind in some way, the way we understand people. And, uh, as with any technology, it can be used for good adaptive reasons, or it can be abused for maladaptive reasons and have some downsides to it. Okay. So we have to be careful. Go ahead. I was going to say that, in fact, when Ichaso started teaching this, uh, they were very secretive about it because they didn't want this to be used in bad ways or negative ways. Yes. It, yeah. 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 Excellent point. And, um, and again, I think he had a point to that, right? Uh, and we see a lot of abuse of the Enneagram. And some of those abuses are just kind of trivializing human nature in a really irritating way, right? Um, uh, but some of them are, can be a bit more sinister that we have to really watch out for. And uh, again, as with the benefits of the Enneagram, there was one that was sort of internal and another was that's external. We kind of see the same thing here, right? The internal abuse of the Enneagram is that we can use it to stay stuck and to justify our behavior, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the, the staying stuck, part of that is just always talking about our Enneagram type, right? I mean, the more you convince yourself or the more you tell yourself you are this, then the more likely you are to continue to be that. So if I tell myself I'm a three, you know, every day and keep referring to my threeness, 
then I'm never going to get out of being a three. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but there's another side of this too. Yeah, and and, and so many people, they just say, uh, "Yeah, I'm doing this because I'm an eight. What can you expect? Yes. You know." And that's that's justifying my behavior, but it's also it also touches on abusing others. Uh, yeah. It is abusive to uh, throw your type at the other person uh, to justify your behavior um, without acknowledging that you might be um, causing some pain or damage to the other person. Yeah. But not every uh, situation where people justify their behavior is an abusive one, right? I mean, yeah. sometimes people uh, explain their lack of effort for something mm -hmm. or the reason they didn't be successful at something on their Enneagram type, or they blame their lack of discipline or their lack of effort on their Enneagram type. So um, this, this can be, um, these justifications can be either damaging to myself or damaging to other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there, there's lots of ways to use this to damage other people. Yeah. So, so one of the ways which we try to avoid and we um, are very clear about it is when you type someone, uh, when you say, of course, you're doing this because you're a four and the other person doesn't know what the Enneagram is. Uh, so putting labels on people without explaining what you're talking about and without uh, giving them a chance to find their own personality style, uh, it is abusive. Yeah. I really think, you know, as you were saying that, Maria, as I was thinking about, is there ever any, is there, is there any circumstance in which it's okay to, it's, you know, to kind of say to somebody, well, you know, you did that because you were a one right? Or you're thinking like a one here. And I really don't think that there is, right? I mean, you know, because all of those things are diminishing. Like you said before, the Enneagram type is just a label that we put on people who behave in certain ways. And so even if we were to say to somebody, well, you're only doing that because you're a one, we would then have to say, well, what does it mean to be a one, right? And we would say, well, you're being kind of rigid here. So let's just skip over the label and say, you know, you're being kind of rigid here, I think. Maybe we should talk about that. So um, we, we really, really discourage people from using uh, the Enneagram types and labels in any kind of way like that. Yeah, because it, um, it, it, it's almost like you're not talking about the behavior, but you're talking about the person when you do that. It's, yeah. it's you're, you're being rigid compared to you're a one and being a one it's like something that i it's hard to change and uh being rigid it's something that you can work on yeah honestly it's the same as me saying to you well you're only thinking that because you're a woman right uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah right i mean imagine you know imagine how you would feel if i said that you know or you said to me well you know you're only acting that way because you're an american uh you know so uh, North American. Um, <laughs> so, you know, these kind of labels are just um, uh, just uh, they're abusive. I mean, it's just what it comes down to. They're abusive to people. We should also never, ever, ever use these um, labels 
to limit people. I remember seeing one time on a video where an Enneagram teacher was telling a, a young boy that because he was a particular Enneagram type, he would, you know, always struggle at doing this thing or that thing. And I mean, just the message it was sending to that child was so offensive to me. Um, it's just it's just absurd. It would be like, again, like me saying to you, well, Maria Jose, you'll never get a good job because you're a girl. You know, I mean, it's just. Just Thank you awful. for the girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, anyway, we should we have to be really really careful about yeah. uh, using the enneagram as a tool of abuse. It's a great quote at the bottom of this page that we like to uh, 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 share with people. Um, when it comes down to whether or not we're using the Enneagram in an effective way, we just always have to remind ourselves, don't be fooled by your own wisdom. Okay. Don't fall into using a tool or a technology in a way that it's not meant to be used. So there are some good uses of the Enneagram. Right? Uh, this, uh, this uh, thing on the right of the screen underneath our pictures is what's called a duergia. It's a, a, uh, an icon from Tibetan Buddhism that represents the lightning bolt of discernment that cuts through illusion. Okay? And that's what the Enneagram does, right? It says to us, all right, stop, cut through all the nonsense. Here's what's going on. And in my case, it's usually telling me, stop striving to feel powerful so much or do it in a better way. Okay, so it just, it helps us to, you know, kind of get right to the point, like with that problem resolution protocol we talked about. And it provides more objectivity in a subjective world. It will never be completely objective, but but it because it cuts through the illusions, as you were saying, um, it allows us to see things more as they are and less as our biases or illusions make us think they are. Yeah. Yeah, the Enneagram, it kind of stands outside of us, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a map that stands outside of the territory, and it allows us to step back and get perspective, okay? And that's, that's the objectivity there. It allows us to step back, and when we're uh, sort of trapped in the subjectivity of our reactions and our reactivity, to say, okay, let me take a deep breath here. Let me look at this more clearly and see if I'm just acting out of my... Uh, preferred strategy yeah and it also helps us see people as they are and as they can be and i'll share an example here um, i learned about the enneagram through my parents they went to enneagram workshops when i was at school and my mom identified herself as a type one now she used to tell me what to do as a mother but uh also I felt really criticized by her. And it was coherent with her type one. So I got very irritated. And as a type one myself, I was very sensitive to criticism. Now, after a while, I started questioning her type. And I, when I looked at her with fresh eyes, I realized that she was probably a six, not a, not a one. And I talked about it with her, and she saw that in herself as well. Now, something happened to me that when I saw her as a six, I interpreted her actions in a different light. 
And now every time that she would say something that before sounded as a criticism, now it only sounded and felt as a word of caution, like something that she wanted me to pay attention to, but not necessarily because she thought I was good, going to do something different or that I was doing the wrong thing. It was only that she wanted me to take that into account and then she would feel like she was doing her job. That made me lower my defenses and use those things and not react to them. Yeah, that, that, that's a great story. And it really does illustrate the point that when we can look at somebody else's behavior and really understand where it's coming from, we just we lose our energetic charge about it. Right. Mm -hmm. we, we don't take it as personally. Okay. And we also say here that they, that we can uh, um, see people as they can be. What do we mean by that is that um, when we really understand their Enneagram type, we start to see what the possibilities for growth and development are. We, because we know what a quote unquote, you know, uh, healthy or developed version of this personality type looks like. So we start to see opportunities, not in a limited way, but in kind of an expansive way, right? Because we understand the mature version of the Ennea type rather than the immature or in contrast to the immature type that we're probably seeing, okay? So, uh, you know, a, a good example is, you know, I have four sons and I know they're Enneagram types. And, uh, and when I look at them, I see behaviors that would, you know, might otherwise be irritating, right? If I didn't understand where they were coming from. Um, and whereas they might feel limiting to me, you know, the behavior that I'm seeing in them, there's a part of me that might think, oh boy, you're never going to get a job if you keep acting this way. I start to understand that, yeah, you know what, here's the path of growth that we see, and this kid's going to be just fine, right? Uh, you know, at least regarding that behavior. Yeah. 